On June 3rd, 2019, we lost a British actor with an ardent following. Though chances are that unless you're already into British TV science fiction, you may never have heard of him. If that's you, this is your chance to change that because for this installment of the Retrogram podcast, we are going to pay tribute to one of my favorite performers in that genre, the late great Mr. Paul Darrow. Born Paul Valentine Berkby on May 2nd, 1941, he was an avid movie watcher as a schoolboy. After studying at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, which he attended with his roommates Ian McShane and John Hurt, Paul was a working actor almost immediately out of school and was a fixture of the British stage and screen. He only ever had a handful of movie roles. One of these, as a doctor in the James Bond film Die Another Day, was all but completely edited out of the movie, but he still got residuals from TV showings. He's best known for his starring role as the quick-witted, quite possibly sociopathic computer hacker Kerr Avon in the late 70s, early 80s BBC science fiction series. Blake Seven, though many of his obituaries decided to add something with a little bit more public recognition, pointing out that he'd guest starred as different characters in two Doctor Who stories, aired fifteen years apart. But he did a lot more than that, and that's where this retrogram comes in. Retrogram: Revisiting TV futures from the past. An examination of yesteryear's television, science fiction, fantasy, spy-fi, horror, and superhero shows. Commencing retrogram. A retrogram special, Life Lessons from Kerr, Avon. A great big fan love letter to Paul Darrow, including shows from 1975, 1980 and 1985. Aired in the UK, just in case you're not familiar with it. Although this show, you might be familiar with it, and we'll get to that in our discussion later. Three men and a baby. Not a screwball comedy, but something of a somber scene. The Earl of Huntingdon is entrusting the life of his son to Sir Cedric Usher and a monk named Father Ambrose. He fears for his son's life should he raise the boy himself. But when the child is of age. He wants Sir Cedric to present the child to the king, as the rightful Earl of Huntingdon. He leaves them with the ring bearing the crest of his family, and with that, he walks out of his son's life. An arrow hits its target, and not for the first time. Meet Robin Hood, the young man wielding the bow. The last time we saw him, well, it was a few seconds ago, and he was in swaddling. But time has passed, and he's really gotten good with a bow and arrow, really good. His father, John Hood, praises his skill with the bow, and he hopes that with that skill comes the wisdom to know when it's needed to bring that weapon to bear. John watches as Robin takes to the woods to hunt deer, with Robin predicting that there will be a feast tonight. When John Hood returns home, Father Ambrose is waiting to see him. The Earl of Huntingdon is dead. The time has come for Robin to learn of his noble lineage. Outside, Robin has just shot a stag to bring back for dinner. Well, to bring back as dinner, it's not like it's a guest. 
He's a bit preoccupied and doesn't notice the two soldiers riding in behind him on horseback, with a haggard, tired-looking man struggling to keep up, his hands bound by a rope tied to one of the horse's saddles. They get on to Robin about killing one of the king's deer, to which Robin replies that his father is the king's forester. That doesn't impress the two Norman soldiers. When one of them starts to dismount his steed while boasting of how Robin will soon be tied and dragged behind them like the other guy, Robin already has raised his bow and drawn a bead on him. Better stay on that horse, buddy. The Norman isn't too worried. Even if you shoot me, my friend here will kill you before you can draw a second arrow. Robin fires an arrow into the tree behind them, the arrow narrowly threading the needle right between the two soldiers, and before either of them can move, he's reloaded and demands the release of their prisoner. John Hood. Hey, remember him? He's the king's forester. He shows up to find out what's going on. The two Normans claim that the prisoner stole berries from a bush on land owned by Sir Guy of Gisborne. John allows them to take their prisoner and leave, over Robin's objections. But John insists. Robin can't afford to get into trouble with the law. We'll explain over dinner. Dinner-time banter with guests is awkward enough as it is, but seldom as awkward as when they tell you that you're now the Earl of Huntingdon and that you need to ride out to London to claim your rightful inheritance from the king before he leaves for the Crusades in the Holy Land. Robin is given his father's ring and a sealed letter left by the late Sir Cedric Usher, and he's told by the man that he thought for his entire life was his father to go with God's blessings. In the morning, Robin climbs onto his trusty horse to make for London, gracing a disease-ridden beggar with an entire loaf of bread along the way. You see, that's just who Robin is. He even stops and dismounts his horse to help a group of riders dealing with a broken wagon shaft, and, hello, who's in the wagon? It's the lovely Maid Marian. Robin doesn't get too distracted, though. He helps the Saxon soldiers guarding her, and her uncle, Sir Kenneth Neston, lash together a makeshift repair job, enough to get the wagon where they're stopping next for a more permanent repair. As Robin watches the young lady and her entourage leave, okay, now he's distracted. And so is she. But just as soon as they're gone, an old woman comes out of the woods, cackling at how taken Robin is with Marion, and predicting that Marion's beauty will some day fade, just as hers did. But Robin need not fear death, she says, for he will never die except by a woman's hand. And with that, she's gone. As in, Robin has no idea where she possibly could have disappeared to. Well, that was weird. Thanks for the tip. Elsewhere, Prince John is preparing to take his leave of the Sheriff of Nottingham so he can return to London and rule in place of his brother, King Richard, as the Prince Regent. The Sheriff is buttering Prince John's bread pretty thick, pouring on the praise, and Prince John returns the favor, pointing out that he'll need supporters for his own agenda once he's in power and that those supporters will be rewarded. They're greasing each other's palms so much that it's a wonder the sheriff can still handle his chess pieces. That evening, Sir Kenneth and his group have stopped for the night. Kenneth and his daughter argue in the local tavern. She's seen for herself the cruelty with which Sir Guy of Gisborne punishes those who fall out of his favor, and she's just not crazy about the cruelty, or the fact that her father wishes her to marry Sir Guy. She heads upstairs to her room at the inn, and, hey, there's Robin, the carriage-fixing guy. A look is exchanged. Okay, we clearly each think the other is kind of dreamy. Sir Kenneth invites Robin to sit at his table just as a bunch of Norman soldiers wander in. They're searching for something, and one of them is sent to search upstairs. 
Sir Kenneth stands and warns them that he won't allow his daughter to become the latest Norman conquest. She's soon to be Lady Gisbert. Robin tries to conceal his disappointment at this news as the soldiers leave, and he even questions Sir Kenneth's judgment on allowing his daughter to be wed to such a man. Sir Kenneth comes clean. He's not crazy about the idea either. But if his daughter's Saxon blood can begin to dilute the Norman blood ruling the land, he thinks it's worth it. Sure he does. It's why he's drinking himself into a stupor. Elsewhere, at the keep of Sir Guy of Gisborne, to be exact, dinner and drinks are flowing, and Sir Guy predicts that the woman being brought to marry him is, in his words, a frump. His allies, the Abbot of Grantham and the Sheriff of Nottingham, are amused, but the Sheriff insists that the marriage must take place, bringing the dowry of Sir Kenneth's Saxon-controlled land and wealth under Norman control. In the morning, Sir Kenneth, Marion, and their entourage leave early, which Robin doesn't find out about until after breakfast. He rides out to catch up with them and follow at a discreet distance. Good thing, too. Highwaymen attack the group, intent on making off with both Marion and with Sir Kenneth's jewels and treasure. The only thing they get is arrows in the neck. Robin takes them out from hiding and then reveals himself. But here come more men on horseback. Oh, hey, guy. No, really, it's Sir Guy of Gisborne, I mean. He says he was in pursuit of those same robbers. What a coincidence. But he will now escort Sir Kenneth and Marion back to his castle. We'll take it from here, Robin. Good job with the bow and arrows. Sir Guy tries to pay Robin for his help, but Robin would rather Sir Guy used it to pay someone to guard his berry bushes. Sick burn. London. Prince John lays it all on the table for his brother, who happens to be King Richard the Lionhearted. Hey, bro, make me Prince Regent. I'll look after the place while the master is away. The king is not amused. Ever since Prince John's adventures in Ireland, as he puts it, he says John has no right to rule. Oh, and there's the whole bit about stealing from the war chest. That's just a bit disqualifying, too. John tries to blame it on his callow youth, but his brother, who led an army at the age of fifteen, is unmoved. He's even less thrilled when John has a seat in the throne. Hey, isn't this big comfy chair just totally me? At this point, King Richard is all but ignoring his brother's rants, and that just brings John's lust of power to the surface in a very shouty way. Just see yourself out, says the king. Oh, and get someone to throw a bucket of water over you. That might bring you to your senses. You're dangerous and dangerously gullible, and that's why you don't get to sit in the chair. The king's final warning is pretty stark. The only thing waiting for you at the end of the road of treason is the gallows, or the man with the axe. Prince John finally takes the hint and leaves the throne room, and King Richard resumes planning for the war ahead, and word reaches him that a young man has arrived to lay claim to the estate of Huntingdon. King Richard is intrigued by the sealed letter from Sir Cedric Usher and by the ring, but what the king really wants is for Robin to take off his shirt so the king can check for a birthmark. And it's there. Robin is indeed recognized as the Earl of Huntingdon. Time for some sparring. Robin's not remotely as skilled with a sword as he is with the bow, but King Richard sees great promise in him, so much so that he wants Robin to join him on the crusade as his squire. Robin isn't crazy about this idea, and he puts his neck out there to say as much. He doesn't think the king should leave England at all, lest unscrupulous men fill the power vacuum. As Robin puts it, the peace of England is more important than killing heathens in a foreign land. 
Not to worry, King Richard says. I've consulted the court astrologer on this whole crusade thing. It's all good. Now, get ready to travel. Oh, and maybe learn to hold your tongue the next time you think about questioning your king's judgment, kid who just walked in here and got recognized as the Earl of Huntingdon today. Not so much a job offer as a job order, then. Oh, hey, guy. I mean, Sir Guy Gisborne is here, too, seeking the king's blessing on his betrothal to Lady Marian. This also doesn't impress King Richard. He knows a marriage of political convenience when he sees one. Oh, by the way, meet my new squire, the Earl of Huntingdon. That seems to throw Sir Guy for a loop. You see, his buddy, the Abbot of Grantham, has been in control of the Huntingdon estate for quite some time. The Abbot is alarmed by this development, since he was operating on a claim to the estate that just wasn't all that strong. And if Robin's claim has been recognized, the Abbot is teetering on the verge of being not just a commoner, but a beggar. The Sheriff of Nottingham takes some delight in his predicament, being the sadist that he is, but he also finds this development troubling, as that whole Nottingham, Gisborne, Huntingdon, Neston power block he wants to happen is now in danger. Oh, but it gets worse. The Abbot has gone deep into debt to maintain his lavish lifestyle, and even if this upstart Earl of Huntingdon is dealt with, that still threatens the Sheriff's plans. "'Go ask the moneylender for an extension,' he advises the abbot. The abbot starts to make a quip about how the sheriff is in pretty good with Prince John, and he finds himself staring down the length of the sheriff's dagger, insisting that he's too central to the sheriff's plans to be killed. "'Don't be too sure about that,' the sheriff says. "'Well, look who's here. Marion's in London, at the castle, to serve as a lady in waiting to the Queen Mother.' and Robin's having a hard time keeping his eyes off of her. She's heard about his inheritance. She's happy for him. It's got to be cool to be suddenly rich. Um, bye. And Robin's still staring. Dude, you're staring. Robin rides out to check on things at Huntingdon State alone. Well, not so much alone. Lying in wait near the road he's taking is one Will Scarlet. He's got some friends with him. They're probably not planning on letting Robin make it to his destination unrobbed. This could be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Or highway robbery. What are the odds? To be continued. Before we go any further, you know what? I've never had to say my own name so many times in rapid succession. That was kind of weird. Hey, should we warn Prince John about this whole chameleon thing? Nah. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, Back up to Retrogram 8311 and give it a listen. The Legend of Robin Hood is, according to the credits, a BBC production in association with Time Life Films, which explains the lavish look. Hey, we've got dollars and pounds to play with here. Go nuts. The costumes are spot-on perfect, not too modern at all, and it's just beautifully shot. It's nearly a solid hour long, but I was just so taken in by how well made it was that I really didn't glance at the clock. This isn't the only telling of the Robin Hood story that Retrogram covers, as other installments will discuss the legendary late 80s fantasy version of the story, Robin of Sherwood, which was produced by the regional network HTV for distribution via the BBC's rival broadcaster, ITV. I have to give points to this version of the story, though. It's grounded in the realities of the rulers of England at the time, and it happily wears its mostly authentic medieval dirt and grime, while Robin of Sherwood, well, it's kind of off with the fairies. It would rather dabble in all manner of mysticism and high fantasy. 
The cast of The Legend of Robin Hood is right on the money, and, well, this was clearly a prestige production for the BBC, and they nailed it. The only glaring modernism that I spotted was this. In the location film scenes with Maid Marian, in which she seems to have no makeup on, that seems realistic enough. Once we show her in a studio setting on video, however, she's clearly much more made up, even when it's bedtime at the tavern. That being said, it's nothing compared to the Hollywoodification that has beset much more modern tellings of Robin Hood, which would no doubt be cast entirely with really, really made up and dressed beautiful people. And you kind of have to imagine a little trademark symbol after that phrase. Toothpaste commercial. Ding! If you're going to try to tell the Robin Hood story as some kind of historical record, this is how you do it. Naturally, we're watching for a pre-Bleak 7 Paul Darrow here, and of course he's the Sheriff of Nottingham, because of course he is. And man, is he a nasty piece of work, and I wonder how much this came up in Paul's auditions for Blake, because I see a whole lot of Avon in the Sheriff. But Paul is hardly the only standout performance. The show is full of good performances. The King and Prince John are played by Michael John Jackson and David Dixon, respectively. And that scene where Prince John all but demands to be made of regent is a masterpiece of verbal fencing. I've seen David Dixon before, and he will certainly be discussed in other installments of Retrogram, for his work as Ford Prefect in the 1981 TV adaptation of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. One thing I remember reading about his part on that show was that he had to be lit a certain way because he had unsettlingly bright blue eyes. That's actually a good thing for a Ford Prefect, and holy cow are those eyes unnerving here. You can see the wheels turning in his head, and whether he intended this or not, Dixon's take on Prince John comes across as being hedonistic at the very least, possibly not heterosexual. King Richard is clearly not having his brother's crap. Keep in mind, this was a year before I, Claudius, hit screens across the UK with this kind of intrigue just oozing from it, and this is just a delicious scene of verbal bobbing and weaving. William Marlowe's reading of Sir Guy of Gisborne is another scene-stealer, and there are quite a few tells of his deviousness as well. And when he finally lays eyes on Marion, holy cow, is it creepy how obvious it is that he can't wait to lay his hands on her. The after-dinner scene where he's standing just over her shoulder, basically saying, can't wait to get some of that, that's really uncomfortable. And to think, earlier in the show, he was saying things like, I have to suffer a Saxon slut as a wife. As Arthur Dent once said, he's such a nice fellow, I wish I had a daughter so I could forbid her to marry him. It's really fun when Sir Guy goes to seek the king's permission to marry, because after spending the whole episode watching Sir Guy be a total creep, we finally get to see him stuck in a room with the one man in a position to take him down a peg or two. If anything, Martin Potter's polite but steely-eyed Robin is such a subdued performance that he's in danger of being upstaged by almost everyone around him. That doesn't mean he's not good. It just means that this very brief six-episode series was top-heavy with talent. Now, as far as Martin Potter goes, he obviously was worthy of being among that talent, as he was the star of 1969's Fellini Satyricon. He was also in 1971's Nicholas and Alexandra, which featured Tom Baker as Rasputin. On TV, he would go on to appear in Emmerdale, The Famous Five, The Borgias, All Creatures Great and Small, and the 1983 Doctor Who story Terminus. Ironically, given that it concerned King John, we have already seen Michael John Jackson in action in the 1983 Doctor Who two-parter, The King's Demons, where he was Sir Geoffrey. 
the only character to die in the entire story. He's also been seen in Robert's Robots, Casualty, Emmerdale, Coronation Street, and he's shown up quite a few times in the 1990s Highlander TV series, which I really don't remember. I have to go look that up now. Diane Keene was Lady Marion in The Legend of Robin Hood. She's also been featured in The Morecambe and Wise Show, The Two Ronnies, The Professionals, The Feathered Serpent, and Foxy Lady. We already mentioned David Dixon's future connection to the TV Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He also appeared in Zed Carr's Target, The Sweeney, Grishko, and The Bill. Sir Guy of Gisborne was played by William Marlowe, who also appeared in The Saint, Softly Softly, Emergency Ward 10, and EastEnders. Marlowe appeared twice in Doctor Who, first as the dangerous convict Harry Mailer in 1971's The Mind of Evil, and earlier in 1975 he would return to Doctor Who to play the part of Nerva Beacon crew member Lester in Revenge of the Cybermen. It's also worth mentioning John Abinery as Sir Kenneth Neston because he played a regular role in Robin of Sherwood as well as Hearn the Hunter. We'll undoubtedly be seeing more of his work since he also had a recurring role as Hubert Goss in Terry Nation's Survivors and guest starred in four different Doctor Who stories, 1968's Fury from the Deep, 1970's Ambassadors of Death, 1974's Death to the Daleks, and 1978's The Power of Kroll, playing a different character each time. He appears in the second season Blake's Seven episode Hostage, though his screen time was spent with Gareth Thomas rather than Paul Darrow. He also appeared in Into the Labyrinth, and he was Rimmer's dad in the 1988 Red Dwarf episode Better Than Life. We lost John Abinery in 2000 at the age of 72. now going to do something that most retrograms don't do, and that is we are going to change years. We are fast-forwarding to Blake 7, Season 3, Episode 9, Sarcophagus, which aired March 3, 1980, on BBC One. The story so far. It is the third century of the second calendar in Earth's distant future. The Terran Federation rules over Earth and its outlying human colonies on other worlds with an iron fist. A rebellion was once led by Raj Blake, who recruited a few fellow convicts bound for the prison planet Cygnus Alpha and commandeered a drifting alien starship which became known as the Liberator. But Blake went missing after the fight for freedom against President Servalan and the corrupt Federation had to be put on hold to deal with an attempted alien invasion from the Andromeda Galaxy. The Liberator is now under the command of Kerr Avon, an immoral and possibly unstable computer genius who never shared Blake's idealism. Without Blake there to lead the fight for justice, neither the Federation nor Avon's own crewmates know what he'll do with the power of the Liberator at his disposal. Sarcophagus A canyon somewhere on an alien world. 
robed figures move in a slow and solemn procession toward a spacecraft that looks something like a flower bulb. One of them carries something that's clearly of great importance, a blue egg-shaped object attached to an ornate pedestal with some kind of electronic controls placed near a mummified body. The robed figures are all women with silver skin, one of whom seems to be the priestess in charge of an elaborate ceremony. One by one, masked figures are summoned into very brief existence at the center of the ceremonial space aboard the vehicle. A green-robed figure sprinkling incense, a jester who appears in elaborate orange and yellow robes to perform a magic trick or two, a figure in a blue gown with a musical instrument, and a red-robed figure who performs martial arts-like moves, clearly some kind of warrior or protector. The ceremony is over. But one more figure coalesces into existence at the center of the room, dressed entirely in black and clearly unwelcome. The spirit of death. Get out of here. The priestess removes a ring from her own finger, places it on the finger of the deceased, and leaves. Energy fills the chamber. The ship launches. Time passes. Aboard the Liberator, something very unusual is going on. And that something unusual is Avon doing a welfare check on Callie in her quarters. She's been in there for ten hours, sketching and drawing vistas she remembers from her home planet of Auron. The Federation, and President Servalan in particular, recently laid the planet to waste, intentionally infecting it with a plague, just so Servalan could try to extort the secret of Auron's cloning facilities. Now it's all gone. Regret is a part of being alive, Avon points out but just try to keep it a small part. As compassionate, reassuring pep talks go, it's about as good as Avon can manage. On the flight deck, Zen, the Liberator's onboard computer, has detected a derelict space vehicle. Hey, that's weird. It looks almost like it was grown rather than built, like some kind of flower bulb. Almost certainly alien, but with no signs of life on board. Though the Liberator crew was planning to mine rare and valuable metals from a stray asteroid, the possibility of getting some alien technology that might have some use against the totalitarian Federation is irresistible. Avon's preferred course of action to ignore the alien ship and continue with the asteroid mining plan is roundly voted down by everyone else on the ship. Zen sends a signal to the alien ship, and while no response is sent to Zen, something seems to get through to Kali possibly through the natural telepathy she shares with every native of Auron. McCallie says she didn't sense anything. Aurons can only communicate with other Aurons. Tarrant's not buying that story, and neither is Avon, who is quick to take charge of the boarding party, telling Tarrant and Dana to remain on the Liberator as backup. Avon and Villa get ready to teleport to the alien ship along with Callie. It's the chamber we saw before, but now dusty and in disrepair. Callie arrives alone. Avon and Villa lagging several seconds behind her, and Villa arrives almost horizontal even though he was standing in the Liberator's teleport. Everything in this ship is brittle. Just touching most of the ceremonial artifacts causes them to crumble to dust. Callie is drawn to the body, now desiccated to an almost unrecognizable state. She quickly works it out. The ship is a tomb, a kind of spacefaring mausoleum. As Callie examines the body, and the ring it's still wearing, Villa literally stumbles over the egg-shaped device, now coated with dust. Again, Callie senses something, drawing her weapon and firing it. Nothing. But it's a shot that doesn't go unanswered. The ship is now alive, surging toward a power buildup. 
Aboard the Liberator, Dana signals Avon, it's time to get out of there because that ship has become a bomb. Callie grabs the egg-shaped device and, unknown to Avon or Villa, has also taken the ring worn by the corpse. And she's the only one who teleports back to the Liberator. She urgently tells Dana to send her back, where she joins hands with Avon and Villa, all three of them teleporting safely back to the Liberator, moments before the strange organic alien craft explodes. The egg-shaped device proves to be a total mystery. The portable supercomputer, ORAC, can't make heads or tails of it, and neither can Zen using the Liberator's own sensors. In her quarters, Callie has a vision, the woman in green robes with a bowl of smoldering incense. But this time, the woman isn't masked. It's Callie herself. On the flight deck, Villa complains of an uneasy feeling bearing down on him, as if a storm is coming. For once, he's not wrong. Dana gets shocked by a discharge of static electricity, something that shouldn't happen inside the ship. When Callie puts in an appearance, Tarrant accuses her of having accessed some telekinetic power source on the doomed alien ship to rescue Avon and Villa, but before his tone grows more accusatory, Avon interrupts Tarrant with an unusually blunt instruction. Shut up. A short volley of heated words ensues, and things just get weird. Tarrant goads Avon by telling him that he'd be dead or imprisoned on the penal planet Cygnus Alpha if Blake hadn't rescued him. As they argue, and as Dana watches in horror as the words seem to be leading toward things coming to blows, Callie silently operates the controls on the pedestal of the egg-shaped device and then leaves the flight deck without a word. Dana suggests that everyone get some time to rest. Without Callie there, suddenly the tension diffuses a bit. Terence not even sure why he was being so hostile. Still, Avon says Dana's got a point. Everyone needs sleep. And tomorrow everything will look different, Terence says bashfully. To which Avon replies that if it does, it's because Terence's been teleported off ship. Well, okay, some of the tension has been diffused, not all of it. Yowza. Interlude. Dana sings a song, which sounds strangely similar to the song of the robed musician during the alien ceremony. In her quarters, Callie falls asleep and hears a voice calling her name. She's now wearing the ring, at least until it disappears from her finger. But where did it go? In the dead of night, all of the Liberator's electrical systems begin faltering, including life support. Tarrant, Dana, and Villa all arrive at the flight deck separately, greeted by the sight of the blue egg-like device glowing and crackling with energy. Tarrant connects Orak to the egg to scan it over Orak's snarky protest, but he and the others take cover when objects on the flight deck go airborne on their own. The energy buildup peaks, the egg device crumbles and then melts away, and Orak has sustained damage. Zen's not doing too well either, though it does warn Tarrant, Villa, and Dana that an intruder has boarded the Liberator and that energy is continuing to be drained from every system aboard, including Zen himself, who now shuts down. That's all Tarrant needs to hear. He's headed to find Avon and to get the weapons. He sends Dana to bring Callie to the flight deck, but advises her to be cautious while she's doing it. Villa is to stay alone on the flight deck, and that he does. He performs a few magic tricks. For who? It sounds like there's an audience, but no one's there. Villa is the jester. Elsewhere in the ship, Tarrant can't find Avon. He's not in his quarters, but Tarrant has paid the armory a visit, and he's ready for a fight. He charges through the corridors of the ship toward the flight deck. Shooting at the walls of heartache, bang, bang, 
Tarrant is the warrior. In her dreams, or perhaps in her coma, Callie still hears the voice calling out to her, asking her to not allow it to be left alone any longer. It has endured centuries of waiting, and in the telepathic Callie it has found a kindred spirit. Dana arrives, but she can't wake Callie, and she is then zapped by some kind of energy. On the flight deck, Villa has a visitor. Oh, it's just Callie. Oh, that's not Callie, not unless Callie suddenly wears really elaborate robes and has silver skin and can throw massive static electrical discharges from her fingers. Tarrant doubles back to Callie's quarters and awakens Dana, but despite the fact that Callie is lying comatose in her bed, Dana says Callie attacked her. Avon seems to appear out of nowhere. He's been watching everything unfold, quietly, much to Tarrant's annoyance. But the two of them are able to connect the dots. Something from the alien ship had no body, but now it does, by leeching off of Callie and off of the Liberator. Tarrant races back to the flight deck. Villa has been knocked out, and there's Callie. But not Tarrant's crewmate Callie. This iridescent Callie that attacked Villa and Dana, the alien copy of Callie. She offers Tarrant a deal. Serve me, or die. Dana arrives to help, but there isn't much she can do. And she has bad news. Callie, the original Callie, is slipping away. She's dying. They're beaten. But one of the apparitions has yet to make its appearance. The figure in black. Of course, the Liberator is already equipped with one of those. Avon. He arrives and engages in some verbal fencing with the alien copy of Callie. This produces some very revealing insights. The alien is able to attack Villa, Tarrant, and Dana because of Callie's attitudes toward them. Whether she shows it or not, Callie considers herself somewhat above them, and the alien can use that. But she has respect for Avon and perhaps a hidden fondness. Avon keeps pushing, standing toe-to-toe -to -toe with the alien, challenging her to kill him. And while the alien does a real number on the whole flight deck, igniting fires, throwing sparks, she can't kill Avon. Surprising everyone, Avon embraces the alien Callie and kisses her. But don't start shipping these two yet. It's all a cover to get the ring off of her finger, the ring that Callie brought back from the alien ship. Without it, she's powerless, and she begins withering away to nothing. Alien Callie begs Avon for the ring, for her life. No deal. Meet Kerr Avon, the spirit of death. Soon, she's as much a pile of dust as anything else that came from her ship. And Callie's here, the real Callie this time. The ship returns to normal, no longer losing power by the second. It's time to resume the good fight, but before the Liberator is underway, Avon catches a glance from Callie. Perhaps a hidden fondness? Okay, I think we can totally ship these two now. The end. Blake Seven was the invention of writer Terry Nation, who up until 1963 had been renowned as one of England's best young comedy writers until he found himself at the wrong end of an argument over material with one of the popular comedians he wrote for, and then he found himself out of work. Needing to put food on the table, Terry took a job writing a dramatic story for a change, only in this case it just happened to be the dramatic story that invented the Daleks a mere five weeks into Doctor Who's existence. Suddenly he went from being Terry Nation the comedy writer to Terry Nation the science fiction writer. He wrote episodes of Out of the Unknown, The Saint, starring Roger Moore, Department S, The Avengers, and The Persuaders.
In the 1970s, he created both Survivors and Blake Seven, as well as continuing to write the Daleks' various recurring appearances on Doctor Who throughout the end of the 70s. Early in the 1980s, while Blake Seven was completing its run, Nation moved to the United States, where he would eventually become a writer and producer on the original MacGyver. But really, whether it was from continued appearances on TV or his merchandise, the Daleks were the main source of Terry Nation's fortune, and his estate is credited and paid for every appearance they make, even in modern Doctor Who. Terry Nation died in 1997. The really unique thing about Blake Seven is that it remembers things that happened before. The whole deal with Callie's home planet—that was two episodes ago. Now, before you give me that "what are you talking about" stare, consider the state of TV sci-fi prior to Blake. Seldom, if ever, did one episode follow up on the events of another, accumulating layers of a larger storyline. But Blake Seven did exactly that, and it spread quest storylines over each of the first three seasons. Every season of the show was building up to something that would suddenly come into sharp focus, usually in the last episode or two of the season, when the background hints were suddenly foregrounded. Blake Seven was the first sci-fi TV series that really did this, and it's been cited as a key influence by American writers who caught it on PBS, took on board what it was doing, and applied it to their own work later. Among its fans in the states are J. Michael Straczynski and Joss Whedon. Its influence can be seen and felt in everything from Babylon Five to Buffy to Farscape. Blake Seven was the seed that sprouted sci-fi TV binge watching. Whether your taste favors Game of Thrones or Star Trek Discovery, most modern non-anthology genre storytelling owes a little something to Blake Seven. Sarcophagus, in particular, was written by Tanith Lee. This was the first of two episodes written by the fantasy novelist, who apparently approached the BBC about writing episodes of Blake Seven because, despite already being an established author in her own right, she was a huge fan of the show. Her only other screenwriting credit outside of two Blake Seven episodes was a 1999 episode of Showtime's mature audiences only horror anthology, The Hunger. She wrote a story treatment for the 23rd season of Doctor Who, but that entire season was scrapped when the controller of BBC One cancelled that series in 1985, before public outcry forced him to backpedal and. Suddenly, the show was on a year and a half hiatus. Now, keep that piece of Doctor Who trivia in mind because it's going to come up again fairly soon. Tanith Lee started her professional writing career in 1971 with the publication of *The Dragon Horde*, a book intended for younger audiences. Though by 1975, her prose had taken a swing decidedly toward the adult, with her novel *The Birthgrave*. Much of her career was spent divided between fantasy for younger audiences and for more mature audiences. 1980 was a busy year for Tanith Lee, as it also saw the release of her novel *Death's Master*, which earned the first British Fantasy Award for Best Novel ever awarded to a woman. She would go on to win at the World Fantasy Awards in 1983 and 1984. One of the overarching themes in Tanith Lee's body of work was the power of myth and mythology, and that thread seems to wind its way right through the script for *Sarcophagus* as well. Tanith Lee kept publishing new material through 2015, the year that she died. Very unusually, Tanith Lee is also credited with writing Dana's song. Aside from Elizabeth Parker providing more synthesized music than usual for the second season episode Gambit, and the first season episode Duel, which was scored entirely with stock music, this is the only time anyone other than the late great Dudley Simpson handled any of the music on Blake Seven. 
It's worth noting that at this point, Simpson's 16-year run as the house composer on Doctor Who had come to an end, as that series had a new producer who wanted much more modern music than the small orchestral ensemble that Simpson usually insisted on. So while Blake 7 was continuing to go for Baroque, Doctor Who was tracking lutes and drums over synthesizers. Sarcophagus was directed by Fiona Cumming. Given that she directed both Rumors of Death, the fantastic episode just before this one, as well as Sarcophagus, I find myself wondering how did Fiona Cumming not get called back to direct most of the fourth season of Blake's Seven. Despite a very few early career appearances as an actor, Fiona got out from in front of the camera and got behind the camera in the 1960s. She was assistant floor manager for two episodes during the William Hartnell era of Doctor Who, those episodes being half of the story now known collectively as The Massacre, and she returned as a production assistant during the second Doctor's reign for The Highlanders and The Seeds of Death, as well as the final part of the third Doctor's six-parter, The Mutants. She continued her production assistant duties on other series through the early 1970s before finally directing six episodes of The Master of Balantre in 1975, Episodes of Zed Cars and Omega Factor followed, along with her two Blake directing gigs for the 1980 season. She directed at least one multi-part story per season during Peter Davison's tenure as Doctor Who, before going on to direct the primetime soap Emmerdale, Walls of Jericho, Dramarama, High Road, and El Dorado. She was scheduled to direct a Doctor Who story during Colin Baker's time as the Sixth Doctor, but that story, and the rest of the season surrounding it, was scrapped, when the series went on an enforced 18-month hiatus in 1985. However, it wasn't the story submitted by Tenneth Lee. It's interesting and more than a little bit depressing to note that the glass ceiling was still firmly in place at the BBC. In between directing assignments on other shows, she was still serving as a production assistant on others all the way through 1979. Her IMDb resume stops abruptly in 1993. Fiona Cumming also died in 2015. Though there are clearly some other performers involved as the silver-skinned aliens in the very atypical opening sequence of the episode, they are not credited on screen. The only credited actors are the show's regular cast. In fact, there's really nothing typical about Sarcophagus at all. Blake Seven seldom deals with alien life forms, and when it does, as with the second season finale, or for that matter the second season opener, where we run into the folks who built the Liberator, it's a pretty big deal. And while a big part of the show's character arcs rely on sparks flying between the regulars, the quickly spiraling out-of-control argument between Avon and Tarrant is unusual. Things are usually held much more in check. I mean, we're British, after all. We might hate each other's guts, but we can't have any actual unpleasantness. Although some things are set up earlier in the series as to possible romantic pairings among the crew, generally speaking, those hints were ignored by later episodes. There was a hint of a spark between Avon and Callie way back in Season 1, Episode 5, The Web, which is interesting because that's another situation where Callie wasn't quite herself. But that got dropped because, quite frankly, Avon was more unpredictable and therefore interesting if it seemed like he just straight up detested everyone else on the ship, including Blake. I can tell you what, though. As someone who is an avid reader of Blake Seven fanzines in the late 1980s, Sarcophagus sure inspired some fan fiction. Now, actually, let me zoom that in with laser-like focus. That look Callie gives Avon right at the end of Sarcophagus sure inspired some fan fiction. 
In fact, I was probably too young to be reading some of that fan fiction. I'll grant you, that was some look. It's ambiguous, though, and that's the beauty of it. I never read it as the kind of overt come-hither look that inspired all of that fan fiction I shouldn't have been reading when I was 15 years old. But there is something there, a kind of an, oh, so you fancy me, do you? Who knew? In its own way, as very atypical and off-format as it was, Sarcophagus was certainly, at least in some circles, an incredibly influential episode of Blake 7. Now, when Sarcophagus was filmed in 1979 and broadcast early in 1980, these outfits might have been ahead of their time, but let's call these costumes what they are. Tarrant and Villa are totally wearing track suits. Kind of futuristic ones, sure. Stuff's been sewn onto them to try to hide the fact that they're track suits, but they're track suits. Avon looks like he's sporting a black windbreaker jacket with a few extra flaps and the obligatory silver studs added to it, but it's also still totally a windbreaker, even if it's a bit of a forecast of his fancier black leather with studs outfit from the fourth season. Costume designer for this episode was Nicholas Rocker, who only handled a few episodes late in Season 3, but he would be taking over for the entirety of Season 4, really cementing that studded black leather look for Avon, so I guess this was a practice run. As weird as it may sound, as different as it is from nearly the entire rest of the series, Sarcophagus might just be my favorite episode of Blake 7. The very weird ceremonial opening scene sets up archetypes for all of the main characters, and it seems like a lot of the story is about whether or not our motley crew of heroes and anti-heroes resist those archetypes or lean into them really hard. The result is a lot of character study, and that always makes for good TV when you've got a cast this good firing on all cylinders. The actors, and often the writing on Blake 7, transcended the show's minuscule budget. This is one of the best examples of that. And holy cow, if Avon is the spirit of death isn't foreshadowing... Well, forget I said that. Hammer House of Horror, Episode 10, Guardian of the Abyss, aired November 15th, 1980, on ITV. Since this is an anthology series with different unrelated stories and characters in each episode, there's no story so far to tell here. Time saver. Let's just jump right straight into the middle of... A Ceremony. N no, seriously, this is a different show. This is not the beginning of the Blake 7 episode again. Robed men in goat-like masks, upside-down crosses, this probably isn't good. One of the men removes his mask to look at something reflected in a mirror. Whatever that something is, it tells him the time has come. 
A young woman is brought in and forced to look into the mirror, but she doesn't see a man in a devil mask. What she sees isn't a mask at all. It's more like the devil himself, and the unmasked man wants her to summon it here, and it terrifies her, enough that she makes a break for it, and when she realizes she's trapped, she just starts bashing her head into the wall. Anything to keep from bringing it, whatever it is, here. At an auction, antiques exporter Michael Roberts is writing a check to cover the items he's won. Even though the auction is continuing, and his lady friend Laura insists that her horoscope says this is going to be a lucky day, he's ready to call it a night. As he puts it, the rest of the items up for auction are rubbish. But Laura's not ready to give up yet, and she buys an antique table for, well, it's kind of a ridiculous price. Laura meets another man who attended the auction, Simon Andrews. He's very interested in a mirror she has, and he offers her five pounds. Michael's a bit skeptical. He's intrigued by symbols that seem to be etched into the frame, almost like runes. Oddly enough, everyone seems somewhat oblivious to the great big pentagram etched into the back of the frame. Maybe that's because Mr. Andrews just raised his offer to fifty pounds for a mirror. Michael advises Laura to have the mirror appraised before sealing any deals. And the deal is off. Andrews is annoyed that the deal's just been taken out from under him. As soon as Laura drives away, Michael takes the mirror to his own car, but before he can even put it into drive, here's Andrews again, offering 250 pounds for the mirror, and even telling him that, hey, you know, you could keep a hundred of that for yourself, not tell your lady friend about it. Michael tells Mr. Andrews where he can put his latest offer, and he drives off. Out of the corner of his eye, he can almost see something in the mirror in his passenger seat. It almost seems to be making a sound. It's kind of hypnotic. Back to the place where the ceremony was happening. A woman named Allison is part of the ceremony, but she's seen things, and she's not keen on staying. She escapes into the surrounding countryside. She disappears into the woods, followed by men in black, almost monastic robes. But I've got a feeling these guys are not on the side of the angels. Probably just the opposite. Allison manages to stay out of sight, but she's being guided by a sound she's heard before. Kind of a hypnotic sound. And that's when Michael almost runs over Allison as she walks out into the middle of the highway. She tells him that someone is after her and she desperately needs his help. He tells her to get in the car and they're off. Not even so much as a, hey, are you going my way? Because she just needs to get away from the secret society that's chasing her. The mirror immediately catches her attention. Michael brings her to his house, offers her a drink, and then the moment his back is turned, Allison is gone. So is the mirror. Michael's not happy. Laura's not too happy either. Not happy about the mirror being stolen, and not too happy about Michael just picking up a pretty hitchhiker and taking her home. Michael goes to Simon Andrews' antique shop and confronts him. Kind of. He plays his cards close to his vest and manages to get a little bit of information, including the fact that one of Mr. Andrews' clients might shell out a thousand pounds for that mirror. On his way out of Andrews' store, Michael employs a little bit of social engineering and gets the name of that interested client from Andrew's shop assistant. A little bit of research later, Michael has discovered some really disturbing things about the missing mirror. The writing is in Enochian, and the mirror was used in rituals performed by the 16th century occultist John Dee. It has changed hands many times, and at one point was owned by Aleister Crowley. But whether in Dee's or Crowley's hands, whoever was assisting them with their experiments either went mad or died. 
chances are that those same experiments, or maybe rituals, are continuing in whatever secret society Allison escaped from, conducted by one Charles Randolph, the name Michael Sweet talked out of Andrew's shop assistant. Michael returns home to find that someone's already there. The mirror is back. So is Allison. Michael puts what he already knows on the table, hoping for an exchange of information over dinner. It turns out that to summon the guardian of the abyss, the secret society needs sacrifices born under a specific star sign, and they need to come to the altar eagerly. They can't just be captured and dragged, kicking and screaming. Back to the ceremonial room. Meet Charles Randolph. He's forcing yet another young lady to summon the sights within the mirror, but he's going to need a blood sacrifice. Hey, loyal acolyte over there, what's your name again? Simon Andrews? Yes, yeah, Simon. Um, fetch us a live chicken for this ritual. Thanks. Randolph digs out some voodoo dolls, one each for Michael and Allison, and unknown to them, he is stage-directing their every move. So it somehow doesn't seem weird at all to Michael when the aforementioned exchange of information leads straight to the bedroom. It doesn't seem weird at all to Allison that she feels compelled to go grab a knife out of the kitchen, and she starts trying to mindlessly stab the guy she just slept with, at least until Michael gets the knife away from her, which breaks the spell. And hey, could one look into that one mirror and see through to the other one? That's one hell of a two-way mirror. Morning at Michael's place. Well, Allison's still asleep in his bed, so I guess things didn't get too weird for him. Until the doorbell rings, and hey, it's Charles Randolph. He knows Allison is somewhere close by, and he warns Michael that she can be dangerous and violent. Whoa, can she really? I hadn't noticed. But Randolph goes on about how unstable and paranoid she is, and his voice, well, it's kind of hypnotic. Allison shows up and breaks Randolph's control over Michael just in time, and he's invited, in no uncertain terms, to leave. Michael asks Laura to take Allison in, which is super awkward at this point. But Laura's watching the bottom line. She contacts Simon Andrews and offers to sell the mirror for 1,500 pounds. He arrives to write the check and take off with his goods, until he catches sight of Allison and, Hey, do you two know each other? Michael returns to Laura's shop just in time to see Andrews driving off with Allison and the mirror. As for Laura, Michael finds her bleeding from a cut on her head, courtesy of a priceless piece that she says Allison smashed over her head. Charles Randolph's compound. Randolph is a cult leader, and his follower, Andrews, returns both Allison and the mirror to his master. Other acolytes begin preparing Allison for a ritual. Michael races to Randolph's place, and what with everyone busily getting ready for the ritual, he just lets himself in, all quiet-like. He finds Allison in a white gown, lying in a bed, holding the mirror. And when he awakens her, she rings the bell to summon her superiors. In walk Andrews and Charles Randolph. Turns out, Michael, you were born under just the right sign. And you thought you were coming to rescue the damsel in distress, so you came eagerly. Michael, you're doomed. A British TV fixture since the early 1960s, Ray Lonnan starred as Michael, and he'd already been seen in Armchair Theatre, the anthology series devised by future Doctor Who creator Sidney Newman, that is, not the Jeff Lynne solo album. And he also appeared in numerous other shows such as Zed Cars, Coronation Street, Tales of the Unexpected, Lovejoy, and he was a regular in The Sandbaggers, Harry's Game, and he was even seen in the somewhat obscure early 21st century sci-fi series Star Hunter. 
He also had an extensive career dubbing anime for the English-speaking market, and guest starred in two episodes of the John Pertwee Doctor Who story Frontier in Space in 1973. We'll probably discuss more of his work in other installments of Retrogram. We lost Ray Lonnan in 2014. Now, before I even went to look the cast up on IMDb, I knew that I recognized Allison from somewhere. Rosalind Landor had put in her time on British TV with appearances on Zed Carr's Rumpel of the Bailey, Cat's Eyes, and even an episode of The New Adventures of Sherlock Holmes starring Jeremy Brett in 1984. Just a few years later, she had moved across the Atlantic to the States, appearing on Matlock, Hunter, and... Oh yeah, this is what I remembered her from, the 1989 Star Trek The Next Generation episode Up the Long Ladder, where she was a somewhat bossy member of a space colony that had consciously modeled itself on rustic Ireland. But once she wasn't bossing her father around, she was more than available for Commander Riker to wash her feet, if you get my drift. Her main line of work became voice work, with voice roles in The Real Ghostbusters and Tasmania, and video game voice acting for such games as Kingdom Hearts 2 and The Incredibles. She's now best known as an award-winning audiobook narrator. John Carson, who played Charles Randolph, was a mainstay of British TV and film since the 1950s, when he had appeared in BBC adaptations of Ivanhoe, Robin Hood, and The Invisible Man. In the 1960s, he appeared in The Avengers, Adam Adamant Lives, The Saint, and the Shagadelic spy series Department S on TV, as well as a big-screen role in Blood Beast from Outer Space. The 70s saw him appearing in Paul Temple, Mogul, Out of the Unknown, New Avengers, Secret Army, 1990, and Tales of the Unexpected. He guest-starred in the 1983 Doctor Who four-parter Snake Dance, and appeared in episodes of Silent Witness and Midsummer Murders, before his death in 2016 at the age of 89. New Zealand-born actress Barbara Ewing moved to England after completing college and, like Paul Darrow, was an alumnus of the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. She's appeared in The Bill, Comrade Dad, Lovejoy, EastEnders, and Casualty. The screenplay for Guardian of the Abyss was written by David Fisher. David Fisher was an old hand at British TV, having done scripts for Dixon of Doc Green, The Lotus Eaters, Mogul, and a UK soap called General Hospital, which was unrelated to the American series of the same name. But he had also put in some time in the sci-fi trenches fairly recently as of this episode, writing quite a few episodes, 20 in total, during Tom Baker's tenure as Doctor Who, including the opener for Baker's final season, The Leisure Hive, and laying the groundwork for the all-time classic City of Death, although his basic story was barely recognizable after a major rewrite by script editor Douglas Adams. He would go on to write two episodes of Hammer House of Mystery and Suspense, the 1984 successor to this series, before concentrating much of the rest of his career on writing books. David Fisher died in 2018. There are some plot similarities with the 1968 Hammer film, The Devil Rides Out, and by perhaps some coincidence, perhaps no coincidence, that was Rosalind Landor's first film role. The episode was directed by Don Sharp. He had a career spanning four decades, and most of his directing credits were on movies such as Bride of Fu Manchu, The 39 Steps, and Bang Bang, You're Dead. He also directed episodes of The Avengers. The whole thing in this episode with the voodoo dolls reminds me, kind of unintentionally, of a certain scene from Spaceballs where Dark Helmet is playing with his action figures. Now, Kith! It was hard not to laugh, especially as it kind of... 
leads into at least hints of meaningless sex in the middle of the story. I mean, why not? This being 1980, it was kind of tame, but still just weird. This episode aired well after the third season of Blake 7, which, as far as anyone involved with Blake 7 knew, was the end of the show, at least until, because the ratings had been surprisingly good for a show which had lost its lead actor and character, the BBC announced in a voiceover over the credits of what was intended to be the series finale that Blake 7 would be back for a fourth season in 1981. That was the first anyone in cast or crew had heard of it. But after the last studio taping sessions for Season 3 of Blake 7, as far as the cast knew, they were out of work. And since, for a variety of spoilery reasons I'm not going to get into here, because Blake 7 is really best watched cold with no spoilery spoilers, all new sets and props were going to have to be constructed. Blake 7's fourth season would arrive nearly a year and a half after the end of its third season. And so... This episode of Hammer House of Horror was the next thing that brought Paul Darrow to television screens across Britain. Now, truth be told, his delivery here isn't really too far away from his portrayal of Avon. You can almost imagine the director saying, hey, this guy's a really bad guy. You know what to do here. Still, there's a nice little grace note at the end where Andrews insists on being the one to kill Michael during the ritual. That just lets you know it's become personal. The whole episode is a nice little dollop of dread. Whatever's going to happen, well, <laughs> it's Hammer House of Horror. You know it's probably not going to end well for somebody. By the way, there is a slight chance that you have seen this episode, even if you're in the States, because even though it aired in the UK, it did arrive in the US several years after its original broadcast, hosted by Elvira. <laughs> Season 22, Episode 10, Time Lash, Part 1, aired March 9, 1985, on BBC One. The story so far. The Doctor is a Time Lord on the run from his home planet, Gallifrey, and his people, the Time Lords. He stole a TARDIS, a time machine bigger on the inside than out, and wanders the universe with his usually human companions, righting wrongs, occasionally defending Earth from alien invasions at various points along the history of the human race, and trying to defeat evil wherever he finds it. His current sidekick in the TARDIS is Perry, an inquisitive American who prefers traveling in time and space to life on Earth with a broken family. Time Lash, Part 1 Well, normally Perry prefers traveling in time and space, but she does have a complaint to register. The Doctor's travels have seemed a bit aimless lately, and boy would it be nice to land somewhere where trouble isn't the order of the day. Oh, and she advises against sweet-talking her about a trip to the Eye of Orion. She's heard all about it, and the TARDIS never seems to be able to find it. But the Doctor has bigger problems on his mind. A Contron tunnel has appeared in the TARDIS's path. It's a time corridor in space. It leads straight to 12th century Earth. What's up with that? On the planet Carfel, as luck would have it, trouble is the order of the day. 
three young people hide in the remarkably well-lit corridors of the central citadel, plotting to get outside and return to their fellow rebels. They're part of a resistance movement fighting the totalitarian rule of the Borad. Those who displease the Borad, well, they get thrown into the time-lash. Somebody's coming. Beekeepers! No, wait, those are the Citadel guards. They just kind of look like beekeepers. Even worse, there's a blonde-haired, cobalt-blue-skinned android with enormous shoulder pads stalking the Citadel, also part of the state security force. The three young troublemakers are quickly captured, rounded up, and brought before Malin Rennes, the head of the city council that reports to the Borad, and executes his orders. Despite the fact that one of the young rebels is a junior member of that council, the Borad's orders include executing him. To the time-lash with you, but before they're thrown into the time-lash, one of the other rebels wants to speak. He wasn't trying to topple the government. He's just concerned with the direction the government is taking, particularly the recent preparations for war with an alien species known as the Bandrels. Rennes' second-in-command, Tekker, rolls his eyes. Silence this criminal and get him out of here. Tekker even helpfully operates the controls that activate the time-lash. Hey, what are the odds that this might be the other end of that time corridor? The rebels are pushed through, presumably to their deaths, and the time-lash is deactivated. The face of the Borad, a kindly old man, appears on a screen, and although he says a lot of things before the screen turns off again, it all boils down to one word. Obey. One of the council members wants to know if this is what Malin Rennes considers a fair trial. Oh, and that council member just happens to be his daughter, Vina, who had a little more freedom to speak truth to power than most of the council does because of that connection. But Daddy doesn't want to talk about this right now. Fellow council member and soon-to-be Vina's husband, Mikros, follows Rennes to a nondescript locked door, and as Rennes enters it, he slips in, too, hoping to have an unmonitored conversation. It's a bit of a challenge to pull off in a city full of security cameras. This room is where power is monitored and redirected to the Borad's private quarters. Just shut it off, Mikros urges Rennes, but the Malin replies he'd wipe us all out, just so we're clear what the relationship is between the Borad and the people of Carfil. And Malin Rennes admits that he's thought rebellious thoughts like this himself, but he refuses to endanger the lives of his fellow citizens, and he has his orders, sealed orders, on the specifics of the power flow to be directed to the Borad's experiments. And the envelope, please. Wow, Borad wants it all. Shut off life support systems in the hospital. All power in the city. Shut everything off, except for his experiments and the time-lash. It rocks Rennes back on his heels, but he obediently does it. When he and Mikros emerge from the power room, that blue-skinned android is waiting. It orders Rennes to report to the Borad and tells Mikros to return to the council room for an emergency meeting. For the first time in person, and not through a screen, Malin Rennes gazes upon the face of the Borad. He is not a kindly old man. In fact, it seems he is not entirely humanoid. The Borad kills Rennes and instructs the android to take the robe and amulet of office of Malin to its new occupant, Tekker. Malin Tekker is introduced to the council, and Vina immediately wonders where her father is. Tekker offers her his condolences, telling her that Rennes died of a medical condition that had somehow evaded diagnosis. And then Tekker's eager to get down to business. Mikros is accused of treason, which Tekker decides is as good as Mikros being guilty of treason. To the time-lash with him.
Nicross has just enough time to tell Vina that the power of whoever is the current Malin rests in the amulet worn around his neck. As Tucker slides up to Vina to offer a new round of condolences for the loss that's about to happen before her eyes, she snatches the amulet from his neck and races over to the time lash, threatening to drop it into the time corridor. The android, trying to wrestle Micross over to the time lash, bumps into Vina, and into the time lash she goes, amulet and all, with a scream. In the TARDIS, Perry and the Doctor are using what would be considered seat belts attached to the TARDIS console, if only the TARDIS had seats. The Contron Tunnel is giving the Doctor's old time ship a rough ride, and just as it returns to smooth sailing, an apparition zooms from one end of the TARDIS console room to the next. A woman holding an amulet. Who was that? Perry wonders. The Doctor says they may have a chance to find out, since the TARDIS is being drawn to the other end of the time corridor. Malin Tecker is nearly in a panic. The Borad has ordered his androids to seal off the Citadel so no one can escape. If the amulet isn't recovered, there will be terrible reprisals, and probably a lot of executions. But something is coming through the time corridor toward the time lash, and it might just be Tecker's salvation. It's the TARDIS. You see, the Doctor has visited Carfel before in one of his previous incarnations. Tecker warns his underlings, let me do the talking here. Just before stepping out of the TARDIS, the Doctor is suspicious. The last time he visited Carfel, it was a society centuries away from developing any kind of time travel technology, even something as crude as a time corridor. He warns Perry, let me do the talking here. The Doctor wants to inquire about the time lash immediately, but Tecker is much more interested in Perry. It's probably not a healthy interest. The Doctor takes in some of the changes since his last visit. The ubiquitous security cameras are new. Also, there are no reflective surfaces allowed anywhere in the Citadel. The androids are new, too, one of which rips the necklace from Perry's neck and walks off with it. Oh, gee, sorry, thought that was the amulet. Malin Tecker excuses himself to exchange threats with the Bandrel ambassador. It seems the Borat has revoked a mutually beneficial treaty with Carfel's neighboring planet in favor of dominating this entire part of space. Tecker turns the conversation into a very casual declaration of war, and then returns to the doctor. Hey, Doc, we need to talk, and I've arranged for Perry to take a tour of the Citadel. How about it? Perry is worried, but the doctor assures her it's safe to go on the tour. Newsflash, it's not safe to go on the tour. Surrounded by androids and those beekeeper guys, Perry opts for an unmarked door with a giant rotating opening mechanism, kind of like a bank vault on a BBC budget. In she goes, and her pursuers don't even go after her. After all, there's nothing down there but the Morlocks. Tecker feeds the Doctor a story about Vina and the stolen amulet, but the Doctor can tell that some rather major details are being left out, and he refuses Tecker's request that he travel to the other end of the time corridor and the TARDIS to look for it. Oh, but you will go look for the amulet, Tecker says, because we've got Perry as a hostage. Quick reminder, it wasn't safe to go on the tour. Earth, 1885, Scotland. A young man is dabbling in magic, trying to contact the other side. He must be doing something right, because a woman holding an amulet appears out of nowhere and asks for help before passing out. When Vina comes to, her host, a young teacher named Herbert Wells, wants to know if she has come from heaven, or if she's come from hell. Realizing that she's dealing with a member of a primitive culture, she chooses her words carefully. I'm from beyond the stars. 
Herbert seems overjoyed to hear this news, and inspired, too. He writes fiction in his spare time, you see, and this is some seriously good material. But before he can take notes, they both hear a strange, wheezing, groaning sound from outside. Vina fears that whoever's behind that sound has come for the amulet she stole from Tecker. The doctor knocks at the door, and Herbert greets him by trying to banish him back to the netherworld under the mistaken belief that the doctor is an evil spirit. On the contrary, the doctor is looking for Vina not to retrieve the amulet, well, not just to retrieve the amulet, but to get the rest of the story that Malin Tecker left out. The doctor explains where he came from to Herbert, and boy, this is a good day for inspiration for future stories. A time machine? Morlocks? This is great stuff! Herbert is young H.G. Wells, and he wants to return to Carful with the doctor and Vina to see all this for himself. The doctor thinks this is a terrible idea because the doctor knows that young H.G. Wells will have a huge impact on history by writing about all of these ideas. Not that he can tell Herbert that without revealing the young man's future. So it's with considerable alarm that the doctor later realizes, once the TARDIS is back en route to Carful, that Herbert has stowed away. Perry's hiding place on Carful is a series of caverns under the Citadel, and they're not safe. Those Morlocks? They're enormous worm-like creatures who seem intent on devouring her until a band of ragged rebels shows up to fend them off. But now that the rebels have saved her, Perry knows too much. Yeah, we're going to have to kill her. Perry protests. She just arrived with the doctor a little while ago. At the mention of the doctor, one of the rebels opens a locket with a photo inside. If you know the doctor, then you know who this is. So Perry has to correctly answer, or die. Fortunately, Perry has seen some photos around the TARDIS. Maybe she's seen some old episodes of Doctor Who. That's a picture of Joe Grant. Right answer, you get to live. This is the rebel movement that was mentioned a lot earlier, but they're not concerned about the direction the government is taking. They want to topple the Borad before he starts a war with the Bandrels, whose superior weapons will wipe out all life on Carful. But the Borad's androids and guards are onto them. They arrive and arrest everyone to take them to the Borad. The TARDIS returns to Carful, and Malin Tecker is waiting for the doctor. Let's have the amulet. The doctor wants to speak to the Borad first. He's heard so many fascinatingly tyrannical, dictatorial things about him. He wants to meet the madman in charge. This brings the superficial pleasantries to an end. Let's have the amulet, and hey, doctor, while we're at it, let's throw you into the time lash now that you've done what we need you to do. To be continued. Time Lash Part 1 was part of Doctor Who's 22nd consecutive season, a very troubled time, to say the least. It had been just a couple of weeks since the BBC had announced that the show would be taking an unprecedented lengthy break between the end of the current season and the next season, though numerous sources have since said that the 18-month hiatus on which the show was about to embark was a hasty backtrack, and that the original intention of BBC One controller Michael Grade was to cancel the show completely. This all happened during the first full season for Colin Baker as the Sixth Doctor, a season which also saw the show experimenting with a major format change, 45-minute episodes instead of 25-minute episodes. The major fallout from this decision was a matter of pacing and a reduction of the number of episodes per year to 13, and that would have a further major impact in 1986 when the series returned to 25-minute episodes, but only 14 25-minute episodes, as opposed to at least 20 of them in past seasons. 
Timelash was written by Glenn McCoy. Glenn started out not as a TV writer, but as a paramedic, and not surprisingly, that experience carried over into his writing career with scripts for the BBC hospital drama Angels. It wasn't long after that that he stretched his wings a bit and wound up writing this story for the 1985 season of Doctor Who. His only other Doctor Who contribution was a short story for an audiobook compilation released by Big Finish Productions in 2006. He's also written episodes of EastEnders and Emmerdale, as well as a number of self-help books on topics ranging from personal finance to, you guessed it, finding work in the medical field in the UK. Oh, and he also wrote the Target Books novelization of Timelash. The director of Timelash was Pennant Roberts, a longtime director of various BBC sci-fi series, including Doomwatch, Survivors, including that show's first episode, and numerous Doctor Who episodes since the Tom Baker era, including Face of Evil, which introduced Leela, The Sunmakers, The Pirate Planet, Warriors of the Deep, and the never-finished 1979 six-parter Shada, written by Douglas Adams. He worked with Paul Darrow on four episodes of Blake Seven's first season, including Spacefall, the first episode to feature Avon. Pennant Roberts died in 2010. Irish-born Jean Ann Crowley had already featured heavily in such series as Tenko and Riley, Ace of Spies. She would go on to appear in an episode of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, and she has also maintained a separate career as a journalist whose work has appeared in numerous British and Irish newspapers. When I went to look up David Chandler, who plays Herbert Wells, it seems he had a very brief acting career spanning barely a decade. He did resurface for interviews in the Timelash DVD bonus features, however. Actor Neil Hallett was very much in his element as Malin Rennes. He also guest starred in The Avengers and The New Avengers, Out of the Unknown, Department S, and Jerry Anderson's UFO. This was one of his final TV roles. Neil Hallett died in 2004 at the age of 80. Born in 1909, Dennis Carey, credited here as the old man, the projected human face of the Borad, had been on British television screens since the post-war 40s. He appeared in Paul Temple, I, Claudius, The Borgias, and Legend of King Arthur. He had appeared in the much-loved Gambit episode of Blake Seven, though he had no scenes with Paul Darrow, and since his scenes in Timelash were recorded on a separate set, he really didn't have any scenes with Paul here, so it's hard to say that they worked together a lot. He had three memorable roles in Doctor Who, one of which wasn't even seen by the public until well after his death in 1986. He first appeared as the Keeper himself in 1980's The Keeper of Trocken. Or did he? A year before that, he had played the role of an outcast Time Lord named Professor Chronotus in Douglas Adams' farewell six-parter, Shada, though that story's filming was cut short during an industrial dispute at the BBC. I don't want to use the boilerplate standard line that it was cut short by industrial action that has appeared in so many books and articles down through the years because a radio documentary many years later revealed that the studio recording sessions for Shada could have been completed, except that the BBC wanted to leave the studio workers' union with a black eye on its reputation by saying that the strike had effectively cancelled a Doctor Who story. We finally got to see Carrie as Professor Cronotus in 1992 with the home video release on VHS of Shada, for which Tom Baker narrated missing parts of the story. And then in 2017, those missing scenes were animated, with as much of the surviving original cast as possible voicing their parts. Timelash was Dennis Carey's final Doctor Who guest-starring role. And finally, because I was curious, Dean Hollingsworth as that android. <laughs> 
Why did that android have to be cobalt blue skinned with beach blonde hair? What was with the crazy, almost tie-dyed outfit and the giant shoulder pads? Those are questions for the costume designer and the director and the producer. Poor Dean, he just happened to be the guy who got painted cobalt blue and stuck in that outfit. Please tell me that Dean went on to do better things than this. Well, it turns out he actually appeared once more in Doctor Who in 1988's four-parter The Greatest Show in the Galaxy behind the mask of the sinister robot bus conductor. And other than that, the only screen role IMDb shows for him is a 1987 episode of the Hospital series Casualty. Wherever you are, Dean, my hat's off to you. You really took one for the team here. Don't get me wrong, I love Colin Baker and Nicola Bryant, and I'm a bit of an outlier in fandom in that I can generally find a lot of things to enjoy from this era of Doctor Who. But I had forgotten how much this era of Doctor Who was loaded down with scenes where the Doctor and his companion, or companions, argue endlessly in the TARDIS, and just how much life it sucks out of the story. The scenes where Perry's simply seeking knowledge about the Contron Tunnel is cringe-inducing, and if you hit the pause button on the episode and think about it like a human being, it speaks volumes about what she was putting up with at home, that she continues to travel with the Doctor despite being treated so badly. That's really kind of awful. Though modern doctors and companions continue to have their differences, sometimes pretty major ones. Uh, I'm looking at you, Graham, at Ranskorav Kolos. At least they're story and character driven these days, rather than random time fillers that make you wonder why anyone would travel in the TARDIS with the doctor to begin with. Perry wishes that she had the doctor on tape saying that he never gets lost. Now that's... An interesting statement. Let's unpack that a bit. In all of her travels, has she not been exposed to more modern storage media? I know someone from 1985 might use tape as a metaphor, perhaps, but you would think that in her time travels with the Doctor, Perry has probably seen digital voice recorders, cell phones, and other much more modern things than that. One wonders how easy it would be to go back to 1985 and be stuck with cassette tapes, after you've visited a world filled with music downloads and podcasts. It's not a major component of the story. It really doesn't figure into the plot at all. But the whole thing about I wish I had that on tape really got the wheels turning in my head. Now here's something else that got the wheels turning in my head. <laughs> You're 22 and a half minutes in. Yes, I paused and I wrote down the time. 22 and a half minutes in before the Doctor and the TARDIS arrive where the rest of the action is happening. Before the era of 45-minute episodes, that means the Doctor and the TARDIS would have been somewhere completely unrelated to the main plot until the end of episode one. But since Doctor Who was experimenting with longer episodes this season, it's still halfway through episode one. This is really one of those instances where it was clear that the makers of Doctor Who were having a very hard time figuring out the pacing of the show in its new 45-minute format. Though that's how long, on average, that the episodes were when Doctor Who returned in the 21st century, television and television writing had changed. In hindsight, keeping the Doctor out of the action for so long is just a very strange, questionable structural decision from a writing standpoint. And I have a hard time remembering if this has ever been done before or if anything like it was ever done again. I really can't think of an example. Now, let's just say it. The set of the Carful Council Room, the set with the time lash in it, it makes it look like the Rebels are about to be put to death by game show. 
The time lash is a truncated pyramid with silver tinsel covering an opening on one side. It's kind of like the pylons from Land of the Lost, but really brightly lit. It looks like the This Is Your Life guy should be popping out of it at any second. Anytime design work becomes noticeable for all the wrong reasons on film or video, you're looking at the fallout of a series of stylistic decisions dictated by budget. Someone somewhere was doing the best they could with what they had, and it just didn't get air under its wings and take off. Nobody sets out to design or build a crappy set on purpose. Nobody sets out to overlight the hell out of that set, exposing its every weakness. Directors make decisions. Producers approve decisions. Everyone has to work with the fallout of those decisions. And the end result of the decisions made during Time Lash is death by game show. Another decision made by the director has been very well documented by no less than Paul Darrow himself. He was basically told, play it like Avon. This was shot some three years after the finale of Blake 7, and in a way, Avon was a ghost hanging around Paul's career. He even asked to be made up as, and to play the character as, a hunchback. And there was no way the BBC was going to take that suggestion seriously, as he was still a recognizable, bankable face in his prime. Still, if you look back at contemporary reviews, particularly in 80s fanzines such as Doctor Who Bulletin, you can't get through a single review of Time Lash without seeing Avon mentioned. Well, this is why. It's not Paul Darrow's best performance by a long shot, but when a performer is creatively boxed in like that from the word go, it's not hard to see why he might seem uninspired. And yet I found that on a fresh viewing of Part 1 just by itself, the way Tecker is written made me uncomfortable. We have a leader who takes over and swiftly begins destabilizing his society almost immediately while having his strings pulled by someone else. Someone who's really in power. The person who put Tecker in power. Tecker is unceasingly loyal to the Borad after the Borad puts him in power. And even knowing that the Borad isn't benevolent, Tecker hangs on for dear life for the sake of the power he has been granted. And let's just put the cards on the table. Tecker has awful hair. Wait, who was I talking about here? Oh, starts with a T. Oh yeah, Tecker. Time Lash. This could only happen in science fiction, right? So there you have it, a cross-section of what might have been the peak years of Paul Darrow's career, both before and after, the role that made him at least a little bit famous. At the time I first encountered Blake Seven, it was late 1985 going into 1986. Without going into a huge amount of detail, my life was about to turn upside down. A few months after Blake Seven completed a solid one-year weekly run on the Oklahoma PBS station, which we got on cable just across the border in Arkansas, I had lost my mother, and, in a way, I lost my dad at the same time, too. Other people entered the equation, including a wannabe step-parent who was none too fond of me. And yet my dad told me, repeatedly, I had to accept this utterly toxic person into my life, 
despite the fact that she said on more than one occasion she considered me an obstacle and would happily see me dead. I was about to turn fifteen, and I took to sleeping with my hunting knife under my pillow, the one my dad had given to me a few years earlier when he tried unsuccessfully to turn me on to his hobby of going hunting. I was convinced I might have to use it to defend myself from this person that he was allowing to stay under the same roof. I had relayed to my dad some of the things that she had said, but he did nothing. There were other pleasant distractions in it for him. My feelings, well, they didn't enter into it. It was around this time that Blake Seven started running again, and this time I had VHS tape rolling to catch the whole thing. And, whether healthy or not, I saw in Avon just a little bit of what I needed to become. I needed to grow some calluses over my feelings and my family loyalties. I did not have to accept what was happening. I had every right to fight like hell. I had every right to trust absolutely no one because in just a few short months it seemed like I had gone through the looking-glass. My paranoia was, in fact, a healthy defense mechanism. In one episode of Blake Seven, Avon says, Sentiment breeds weakness. Let it get a hold of you, and you are dead. To some extent, I had to live that. I was stuck with a family who didn't have my interests at heart. And keep in mind, this was the 1980s. This was not now when you have endless Internet think pieces about how it's perfectly acceptable to jettison certain family relationships if they're extremely toxic. You did not have that advice back then. I had to grow colder and harder and maybe become just a little bit dead inside to cope. Ironically, at the same time, I was also routinely taping a brand new show called Star Trek The Next Generation, which was brimming with idealism, saying things would be okay. The Star Trek Code of Ethics won me over later in life, but not until I had survived a few more years of having to emulate Avon just a little bit. Avon is not an admirable character. He's sociopathic, he's only out for number one, and he's a danger to everyone in his orbit. I turned that inward. I was more of a danger to myself than to anyone else. As I went through high school, my home situation got even stranger. My dad would take cross-country trips with his new lady friend, and they would be gone for weeks at a time, maybe a couple of months, and all of a sudden I was a teenager living alone in a two-story house. Once I wasn't worried about my survival, the weirdest thing happened. My allegiance shifted from Avon to Picard. A lot of my existence was down to behaving by a certain code of ethics. I could have skipped school, but I never did. I could have taken on any number of really destructive habits, but I never did. I didn't want to be like those people who were supposedly my family, and I went through most of high school in a house, alone, not telling anyone except maybe a handful of close friends what the situation was. I just wanted to graduate and get out. After a couple more years of having to switch on the little Avon in my head any time my dad and his future wife came home between trips, that's what I did. I didn't graduate with honors because it's damned hard to excel in that kind of situation. But I did scrape by. I got the diploma. And I already had something of a career since I'd started working in radio between my junior and senior years. That led naturally into TV production, and that put food on the table for the next 20 years or so. And, in a weird way, it kind of leads directly to me sitting here telling you this. But to get through something like that, you have to have a little bit of Avon in you. My fascination with that character and with the actor who played him became something of a lifelong hobby. 
Paul Darrow had one of those voices that you'd just be happy to hear him reading the phone book. No matter how hard I tried, no matter how good I became at mimicry when I was doing voice work, I could never get anywhere close to that voice. So it hits me right in the middle of my now very squishy, bleeding, liberal heart that that voice has now been silenced. Farewell, Paul. Thanks for being Avon, a character I had to imitate a little bit to survive, and who I now realize I wouldn't want to be anything like. Whether he realizes it or not, Paul Darrow had quite a bit to do with the fact that I'm still here, now, to tell you this whole sob story. And for that, he has my gratitude. Somewhere deep down inside, Avon still lives. The Retrogram Podcast was researched, written, and hosted by the Earl of Green, and this one is dedicated in loving memory to Paul Darrow. The show's theme music was composed and performed by Jazar and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find his work at betterwithmusic.com and at freemusicarchive.org. Free Music Archive is also home to lots of other great music. Additional music in this episode was created by Hermelin, DZ, Philip Gross, and Timo Komulainen, also licensed under Creative Commons. A huge thanks to the Logbook's Patreon supporters. You want to help them help me keep the site and its various podcasts and videocasts alive? That's what Kevin, Darwin, Mark, and Javier did. And you can join them at patreon.com slash the logbook and get goodies such as show transcripts and extra printable trading cards. You can also support the site by buying t-shirts and other goodies from our store at redbubble.com slash people slash the logbook or by ordering just about anything through our affiliate links at thelogbook.com slash store from places like Amazon and eBay. Retrogram is a production of thelogbook.com.